let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. God, it's, it's you we're after today. Uh, not a worship experience. We're not just after uh, trying to check boxes on sacrifices or songs. It's, it's you we're after. We humble ourselves. We look to you. Today isn't about um, how much we enjoy the, our time together. It's, it's about you. It's, we look for you to work in our lives, teach us, instruct us, encounter us, have your way with us. God, we offer up all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, good morning. It's great to see those of you in person and so glad for all of you joining us online right now. Am I on right now? I think maybe so. All right, there we are. All right. Hey, uh, it's great to see uh, those of you in person, those of you virtually who are joining us. It's pretty simple what I'm holding in my hand right now. I'm holding a, a bottle of, or a little tub of water. I got a little towel, and this is a sponge. Um, this is what most of us use to wash dishes, and maybe you use these for some other things in your life. I'm not sure. I just know that whatever you soak this in, and then you squeeze it, whatever you soak it, soak it in is what comes out. So if I put this in water, hold it above the water and squeeze, it's, it doesn't turn into milk. It doesn't turn into Diet Dr. Pepper, or Dr. Pepper, God's favorite drink, all right? It's, it's water. And it should be that simple, right? Whatever we soak in, when, when we are squeezed and we're oppressed, we're, we are pressed, that, that's what comes out. It should be that simple, that if we are taking time to soak in God, when the stress of life presses in on us, it should be, it should be God that comes out. It should be things of God that come out. And too often we go about life and the pressure of, of work or family life and the stress is there. We get squeezed and, and things other than God come out. Emotions that aren't of God come out. And sometimes we take it out on the people we love the most. And I'm walking us through the book of Acts right now because I want you to see who the church was and how the church was defined and when the church was at their best, how they clicked and who they lived for and how they went about life. And there were a lot of times in the early church, it's in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, when the church is squeezed and pressed, either by pressure on the outside or sometimes conflict on the inside. And when they were pressed, when they're at their best, it's things of God that came out. I want you just to see a few places. In Acts chapter 4, this is a place where the apostles had just been arrested. And here's what it says in chapter 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. In chapter 5, this is right after Ananias and Sapphira, right after there were character and integrity issues within the church that were going to get in the way of the mission of God. In chapter 5, verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women, men and women, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And then you have church conflict in chapter 6. We talked about this last week. And in that church conflict where widows were either not being fed or they're being neglected, where there are issues of equality or equity within the church, God's going to do something there. And in chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In chapter 9, you have all these death threats coming after Saul and coming after the people of God. And it says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Even though there's pressure coming from the outside, they enjoyed a time of peace and was, and was, strength, peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As the church was pressed 
the church kept, kept growing because the church was soaking in God. So that when they were pressed and when they were squeezed, it was things of God that came out. It was character that had been formed. So here's three things I want to talk about. Three things I'm going to talk about multiple times throughout this message. And these are the three things that are going to guide our time at the table here in just a little while together as a church. That when pressed, we're rooted. That when crisis comes, it reveals character. More than it cultivates character, crisis reveals character. And that death gives birth to passion and living. So what you see in the book of Acts and what you see in Jesus is that when pressed, they are rooted. So when they are pressed, it's not that then they decide to try to root themselves in God. The healthiest people are when they are pressed, when they are squeezed, when the stress of life is pressing in on them, they, they have roots that are already firmly established. Crisis doesn't as much cultivate character while you were in it, but reveal the character you have when crisis hits. And from the death of Jesus to what we're going to see today, the death of Stephen, and to the death of many people in your life, or the death of Jenny, my sister, in my life, it often gives birth to passionate living because we know, as people who follow Jesus, that death for any of our people, for any of the people of God, death isn't how the story ends. So it encourages passionate living. So one of my favorite stories to tell, I haven't told this story in the life of the church for about five years, but it was the moment uh, that I met Hulk Hogan years ago. That I was late for a flight, I thought I missed my flight, I handed in the ticket, and then I ended up on a jet bridge full of people. And as I was standing in line waiting to get on a plane, uh, I noticed that Hulk Hogan, the famous wrestler, is walking up behind me with his then girlfriend. So they're standing behind me and Hogan has his sunglasses on and he's leaning up against a wall in the jet bridge and all these people in front of me are turning around with their cell phones and they're taking pictures of Hogan and I hadn't turned around to engage him at all. So I just leaned back and I said, hey man, are these people taking pictures of you or me? <laughs> and when I did that, when I said it, Hulk Hogan started laughing at me like he thought I was funny. So I tell people to this day, I don't care if you think I'm funny or not, Hulk Hogan thinks I'm funny. And then he engaged a me in a conversation. I didn't have to talk to him. He's like, man, dude, where are you from? And I was like, well, I, I grew up the first 27 years of my life. I lived in Texas, but I've lived in Memphis now for a few years with my wife. And he looked at me, he kind of pulled his sunglasses down just a little bit. He said, man, I've got to ask you a question. Why would somebody who was born and raised in Texas leave Texas to move to a place like Memphis? And I didn't really like the way he said it. Uh, because I'm protective of Memphis. So we've bought into all things Memphis. I want to... I sometimes want to get violent when people talk about, down about Memphis, which he better, he better be glad that day I was full of grace, all right? Because he better be glad I didn't pour out some of my wrath on him. And he said, why? And then we talked about Memphis barbecue for a minute, and we talked about some other things. And he's like, man, why would you leave Texas and move to Memphis? Because he grew up wrestling in Memphis back in the late 70s. I said, well, man, when it comes down to it, my wife and I are followers of Jesus, and I know a lot of people look down on Memphis. But when we read the Bible and like we hear about God, that seems to be the kind of places where God's going to do something. And if God does something, we just want to be in on it. And he pointed at me, and, and I joked that when he did, I think I flinched a little bit because, um, dude, Hulk Hogan's finger can do some damage, right? He pointed at me. He's like, man, that right there, that, that's cool. That, that's cool. And that's how our conversation ended. Because Hogan went to first class and I went back to coach. 
But I remember I sat down in my seat that day and started thinking through like what I had just told the most famous, one of the most famous wrestlers who's ever lived. That I just talked to him. I just made some confession that like I, my wife and I have engaged Memphis. Like I want to try to live in a way where the resurrection of Jesus changes anything. And how, how am I in my life living up to the confession I just told Hogan? And this is the problem that preachers and pastors have every single Sunday, every weekend. When we stand on stages and we talk, about, uh, we talk about Jesus and we talk about these radical messages of following God and what it means to be the people of God. And then we go home and we wrestle for the rest of Sunday. Like, is what I just laid in front of people, is this something I'm embodying in my own life? Like, am I living into whatever it is I've offered up to other people? And, and as someone who wants to offer up to you every week a radical message of how Jesus transforms the world and transforms your life and invites you into a deeper life, am I doing that too? When I am pressed, am I rooted? When crisis comes in my life, is character of God revealed? Am I living my life believing that death isn't how the story ends, that it gives birth to passionate living? And if you were to look back on the last year and a half, do you think that the world is more united or divided? When you look back on, on the last year and a half, is the capital C church, the global church, more united or divided? If you look just at the churches in America over the last year and a half, or churches, little C churches, little local churches like ours, are we more united or divided? Because we could make compelling cases about how we have seen and how we have rallied for truth and for mission, even in, t in really hard times, yet you also are fully aware, like you don't need me to tell you, of racial divide, political divide, mass guideline divide, COVID divide. People are all over the place and a lot of times we approach life as if you're not with me, then you are against me. And there's been a lot of division. The church is still God's way to share the good news of Jesus with the world. And the church is something God continues to redeem and cultivate and not give up on. So today I want you to see a time in the book of Acts when the church is really squeezed. And they're going to do something about it. It's a story of Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, open, in the, open your Bibles, Acts chapter 6. We talked about some of this last week. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, here's what you see. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, and opposition arose. Now, this is right after we were told that Stephen was one of the seven men chosen by the apostles and the church to help take care of this issue of widows, a certain kind of widows, who were being neglected in daily distribution of food. So Stephen was commissioned by the apostles and the church to do that, to help make sure widows are being taken care of. Yet the very next word, the very next verse, what you see is Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and then opposition arose. Because this happens all throughout the book of Acts. When the gospel is moving and the gospel is going forward, opposition rises up. In chapter 6, verse 15, Stephen's in the process of being arrested. And it says, all who were, sitting in, uh, who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looking intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I don't know what that means. His face was like the face of an angel. I just know years ago in my immature days that this is a verse I would quote to all of my girlfriends. Like, you have the face of an angel. Until I dated a girl who actually read the Bible in context. 
in which she really didn't appreciate me quoting Acts 6.15 about her having the face of an angel because it's in the context of somebody who's being beaten and oppressed and opposed and they're going to die. So apparently in Acts chapter 6, having the face of an angel is that all this opposition is around you, yet, yet their heart isn't faced. Like their focus doesn't change. Every reason to be afraid, but he's not afraid. In chapter 7, in front of all these people who oppose him, in verse 1 it says, The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And then you're going to have what is the longest sermon, the longest teaching in the book of Acts. This is way longer than Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost. This is longer than Acts 20 with Paul, with the elders in, in the churches of Ephesus. This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And Stephen's just going to take these people back to the very beginning and he's going to walk them through Abraham and Moses. And over and over again, what Stephen does is he highlights the faithfulness of God and the rejection of humans. The faithfulness of God and how humans rejected God. Abraham, Moses, he just walks them through the story. And then after walking them through the story of God, how faithful God is, how people kept rejecting him, it comes to the point in that sermon where there could be that moment of invitation where Stephen may have been able to make an invitation into Jesus. Like this Jesus, you oppose him, but this Jesus is still for you. So who here wants to surrender their life to Jesus and be baptized into Jesus? But Stephen kind of took a different approach in verse 51 where Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. I haven't had the courage to try to end a sermon this way before at Sycamore View. And as you can imagine, the people didn't like it. Verse 54, what happens is the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They're furious. They gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now stay right there just for a moment. I want you to look at this. When it talks about Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, this is the fifth time in the book of Acts. The fifth time it talks about Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit. Like Luke is going out of his way when he is writing the book of Acts to let you know Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit who was in alignment with the Spirit, who wanted to follow the direction of the Spirit. He was in tune with the Spirit. This was a man fully immersed in the Spirit of God. That is how he wants you to know Stephen. And now twice you see Stephen, you see something portrayed in, in this story right here. Of the posture of Jesus. What is the posture of Jesus if you're able to see a screen? Whether you're in person or online. What is the posture of Jesus? Standing. Which is rare in the New Testament when it talks about Jesus in a throne. From Revelation, other places in the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus and a throne, it's Jesus sitting on a throne. But here what Stephen sees is Jesus standing. Now I want to take just a moment because I think this is something someone listening today can carry into your prayer life. When the New Testament talks about Jesus sitting on a throne, it's not talking that Jesus is through working. I don't want you to visualize a recliner with a remote control. Sitting symbolized completion. That the work of God was accomplished. Sitting represented and symbolized a place of judgment, which for the people of God, even in the Old Testament, was not something they feared. 
Because they knew God's judgment was making the world right. Like, this is what the people of God want. Like, you should want God to come and judge things to make things right. So there is a part of your prayer life and a part of how I want you to think about God where Jesus is sitting on a throne because something has been accomplished. He is reigning on a throne. But then here, Stephen, it's talking about Jesus standing And standing is a posture of welcoming. Standing is a posture of advocating. That here Jesus is both going to welcome Stephen into God's eternal kingdom. And Jesus is standing in a way to advocate for what Stephen is currently going through. And not just Stephen, but for the whole church, all the people of God. I want you to visualize, even in your prayer time, how Jesus is sitting reigning on a throne, and how Jesus is standing, welcoming you into each day that you wake up. How Jesus is standing, advocating for you and whatever it is you are going through life. How Jesus is hearing your request and taking it before God, advocating. This is what Stephen sees. It's his vision of standing. And then what you read right after that is while they were at this, in verse 57, they covered their ears, they're yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him, and meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. In stoning, they would take him to the outskirts of a city where they would usually put him down in a pit, and then they're taking large stones and tossing them. This was meant to be a long, excruciating death. And they're laying all their coats, their cloaks, at a young man named Saul. Now, I'm not making this up. In Judaism, to be young was 40 and under. Now, I want you to hear that. To be young, 40 and anything under 40. So, hypothetically, if there's a preacher who has turned 40 over the last few months... According to Judaism, 40 and under is young. Y'all just remember that, all right? I think what's more important here is they're all like, they're placing their stuff right there by Saul. And I think what this is telling you, Saul's not only telling them it's okay to stone Stephen. I think Saul may be the one who was behind this whole thing. I think he may have been the one who stirred up all these people. The people who are stoning Stephen are from the same town that Saul was from. Saul's leading the effort to get rid of Stephen. In verse 59, while they're stoning him, while they're stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, and here two statements that flow out of Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said that, he fell asleep. Now, I think it's worth you knowing that according to, and here's on this next slide, I want you to see this. According to ancient ancient Jewish sources, A condemned man can cry out a prayer for his forgiveness. And here are the two things that they were encouraged to cry out in moments like this. May my death be an atonement for my sin. And it even adds that in the case of false witnesses, which was the case with Stephen, causing death, they could cry out, let my death be an atonement for all my sins, accepting this sin. So the cry that people were encouraged to offer up In a death like what Stephen was going through, who was making sure their sins were going to be forgiven by God, and Stephen didn't choose to pray those prayers. Stephen went the Jesus route, where Stephen verbalizes almost word for word what Jesus offered up at the cross. Forgiveness for other people. Here's why I think this is important. 
if you want to die in glory, like you want to die in a way that imitates deep faith in Jesus, then you have to commit to live your life imitating Christ as you live. I don't know how long Stephen had met Jesus. It may have only been weeks, months, I don't know. We just know that the moment he met Jesus, he was all in. His whole life was being soaked in God. And the reason he's able to die in imitation like Christ is because Stephen committed to live in imitation like Christ. I think this is huge for the mission of the church, for who we are, for as we scatter all over the place this week, that if we want to go make a difference for God, it begins with the kind of people we're allowing God to shape and form us into now. So Thomas Merton, a deep guy with a spiritual heart who lived in the 20th century. Thomas Merton once told a story in his autobiography about having this conversation he had with a Hindu monk. So a Hindu monk, somebody who had committed them, their, their lives in Hinduism to, to contemplative practices. And they got into conversation about missionaries, Christian missionaries who'd been sent to, to South Asia and why so many of their work, so much of their work was ineffective. And what this Hindu monk said was that there were a number of reasons that the Christian missionary efforts in the early, earliest 20th and maybe mid 20th century, why they, why they were ineffective is, and here, he said, here is the chief reason, is that the Christian missionaries, they are not holy enough. This wasn't his way of saying that they weren't perfect is they just weren't deeply formed people. They knew the Bible and they could regurgitate it. But they weren't deep enough. This messed with Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton went on to reflect on how what he experienced, what South Asia needed, it wasn't more people who would come, more Christians who would come and build hospitals or orphanages as important as, as those things were. It's what South Asia was asking for, what they needed. They needed to people who had a heart of a saint. People who cared about going deeper with God. And this is why I think it's so important because when it comes to living a Christian life, it's not about your activity as much as it is about who you are allowing God to form you into. It's the who you are before the what you do. And I fully acknowledge that the what you do sometimes shapes you into who God wants you to be, but it's the who you are in God that goes before the what God is asking us to do in the world. Henry Nouwen says it like this, that to be lifted up into the, the divine life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit does not mean, however, to be taken out of the world. On the contrary, those who have entered into the spiritual life are precisely the ones who were sent into the world to continue and fulfill the work that Jesus began. The spiritual life does not remove us from the world, but leads us deeper into it. And as the church, we're gonna struggle with this the rest of our lives of the balance between worship and service, of coming together to surrender to God in prayer and song and teaching and to engage the world with compassion and justice. And there are times a pendulum swings, but then we need the invitation of God to pull us back into what it means to be people who are deeply formed in God together and called into the world constantly to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Stephen dies 
And in chapter eight, verse one, here's what it says. Saul approved of their killing. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all, the, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. He's given the death. He's given a burial of an honored man. They, they bury Stephen. They mourn deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. I, I, I love parts of this. Now, when, for years when I would read this part of, that, of Acts chapter 8, I would think they're scattered because they were running away from something. But the more you read it, they aren't scattered because they're refugees. They're not just running because they don't have a home or the threat of persecution. They're running for the sake of the mission. They end up starting churches all over the place. And Saul's going house to house, but the people of God are going place to place. So even though Saul's going house to house to arrest people, the church is going place to place for the mission. And it says that Saul's going house to house to arrest not just men, but also women. And you only arrest people who you see as a threat. And now, right there in the church, you see there are men and women who they see as a threat to this message going throughout the world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is the one who said, this message of Jesus, this message of himself is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, but it did not happen because there was a, a meeting to discuss mission plans. It happened because when the church was squeezed, the church spread the good news of Jesus all over the world. And there were multiple words Luke could have used when it came to scattering. And the word Luke chose to use is the word about scattering seed so that it can grow. That they aren't scattered from each other, they are scattered for each other. So just think about this week, just in the life of our church, in the Sycamore View body, where are all the places that we're going to be scattered this week? We have people who office and FedEx and AutoZone and hotels and restaurants and people are going to be in schools all over the county and even beyond just Shelby County. We are scattering all over the place. Think about the chance and the impact our church has to make a difference just this week. One of my favorite stories to tell about what it means to be the church is my experience in, in a small little church in Manhattan called St. Paul's Chapel. It's the longest standing building in Manhattan. It's been there since the 1700s. Over 10 presidents have worshiped in St. Paul's Chapel. George Washington's pew is still in St. Paul's Chapel. You can go see it. And up until COVID, some of you thought you were gonna have a pew retired in your honor too, right? Now, now you don't even know if you have your own seat anymore. This is right across the street from Ground Zero. So when the towers fell, right across the street, there's St. Paul's Chapel. And somehow, there are a lot of trees that hover around St. Paul's Chapel. The structure wasn't messed up when the towers fell. Didn't have significant damage. Within 24 hours, the fire department came to St. Paul's Chapel, knocked on the door and said, hey, we're gonna have people who are gonna be working 
at least for the first few days, trying to find live bodies, trying to find people who are alive, but, but efforts to, to try to heal and bring redemption and people who are working in, in a mess. And we're going to need somewhere to go. Can we use your church? And little did St. Paul's Chapel know that they were about to open their building in what would be for the next 11 months a hub, 24 hours a day where firefighters, police officers, volunteers would come into St. Paul's Chapel. And this became this hub where there would be food and drinks and water. And they started bringing in massage therapists and musicians who would play soft music. And they had cots where people would sleep. And it became this place of therapy and healing and recovery. But what I love about the story is every single person who went into St. Paul's Chapel knew that they were going in there to be tended to so that they could go right back out and serve. And when they went out to serve, they knew they had a place where they could come right back into to be tended to. And there are people in here, in person, and some of you virtually today, that what you need of the church is you need to be tended to right now. And what some of you need is to know that the church and the message of the church is calling you to go out and be God's people this week. And when you do, you have a place to come right back to for healing and therapy and comfort. It's gathering and scattering. So I'll come back to the three things I've placed in front of you today. When we are pressed, we're people who are rooted. When crisis comes, we're people with deep character because we're deep in God. And then when we think about death, the way Christians think about death is that it gives birth to passionate living. And if you will, will you just hold the bread and the cup in your hand today? If you're at home, if you have the elements close to you, go ahead and get them. And if you don't, just sit in this moment with us for a few minutes. And as you hold it in your hand, even before you open it, I want you to think about how Jesus embodied those three principles. Jesus was pressed, yet Jesus is someone who modeled what it means to be deeply rooted in God. That anytime any crisis or opposition came at Jesus, Jesus continue to reveal and imitate what it means to be somebody whose character and integrity is deeply rooted in God. And that Jesus knew death isn't how the story ends. Death for the people of God is a launching point. We know death is not how the story ends. It propels us to embody the life of Christ in everything we do. This is what we celebrate every Sunday when we take the the bread and the cup. This story reminds us of a significant moment in history that changed the world. And it reminds us that God is continuing continuing to call his people to go make a difference in the world. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. So for God, for those who feel a nudge from you today to go deeper, I pray that you pull them, invite them. And God, your arms may be open welcoming someone today into the waters of baptism. If so... I pray that you help move them forward to take a plunge. God, for those of us who've been walking with you for years in this moment that we have taken so many times, may it be more than just offering up a sacrifice, but God, we are offering up our hearts to remember well, to remember an event, a time in history, but to also be propelled this week to make a difference in the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church said, amen.